Welcome to the Books, Babble, and Ball podcast, where we talk about writing, journalism, history, sports, and a whole lot more. Let's jump right into this episode. The opening phase of the Revolutionary War began in Boston. And this week, back in Boston, a revolution of sorts is underway in the world of golf. You've got the PGA Tour, long-standing, so much history, and you've got this new live golf uh, group formed by Greg Norman that last week held its first worldwide event across the pond. This week we're talking U.S. Open, guys who have remained committed to the PGA Tour, obviously in the field. It's one of the, I mean, it's a major the 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 great one of the greatest fields in the world uh convening at the country club in Brookline in Boston this week but you've also got guys who have chosen to defect from the PGA tour who last week played in that live golf tournament Charles Schwartzel gets the first win i think he won 4.75 million dollars these guys can say all they want about they're trying to grow the game globally. I would respect you more if you just said, I'm trying to make generational money. I'm, I'm greedy. I only make a million or something in a tournament in the States. I'm going to go make 4.75 by Saudi Arabia-backed live golf. Just my opinion. Anyway, they all converged this week in Boston at Brookline, Guys like Phil Mickelson, who's been kind of at the forefront of this live golf uh, thing. Dustin Johnson, Patrick Reed, Schwartzel, who I mentioned. Uh, a number of other guys who have chosen to you know, pretty much defect from the PGA Tour and try out this new uh, global brand of golf um, for whatever reasons they're saying. Trying to grow the game globally, trying to uh, use the game of golf for good across the world. Those are great PR talking points. Uh, I wish they would just kind of cut the crap and just say, look, trying to make bank, and that's about it, because that's what it is. Anyway, maybe we'll dive into that a little bit. This is just going to talk about I'm just going to talk a little bit tonight about this U.S. Open this week in Boston, one of my favorite cities on earth. Uh, Might be my favorite city. My best vacation ever was in Boston uh, back about six years ago. Just, I mean, it's one of the biggest cities, you know, top 25, top 30 population cities in the United States of America, but still a small town feel, at least to me. I mean, yeah, they have a subway system, but... I had it figured out within an hour. It was it was super easy to know where you were going and to want to go places. I, I was decked out in my Alabama Crimson Tide uh, apparel when I went to a game at Fenway Park. I saw the Boston Red Sox play the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks in an interleague game. And I heard, I expected maybe one roll tide. <laughs> I mean, we're in Massachusetts after all. And I probably heard a dozen roll tides. You know, I, I'm not sure 
how well the Samuel Adams was flowing at Fenway Park, but it was cool to hear nonetheless. Like I mean, I just got from the people such a such a southern hospitality feel in a way that I wasn't expecting. Uh I can't wait to go back to Boston. Love Boston. Uh if there was if I had to leave the south, god forbid, Boston is where I would head. So, that's where the US Open is this week. Uh, the U.S. Open has been at the country club, kind of like the Ohio State University, the country club of Brookline. It's been there uh, three times. Uh, it started off in at Brookline back in 1913, I believe. Um, a guy named, uh, I think it was Francis, and I don't even know how to say his last name, Um won the 1913 U.S. Open at Brookline. And I am currently looking at some of the scores. But anyway, uh, won it in 1913. Uh, it came, it returned, and he won. What's crazy is he won at 12 over par. Different game back then. Uh, there's a lot of history about this Francis, again, his last name is spelled O-U-I-M-E-T. I, I, I'm not going to even attempt. Um, so he wins the 1913 U.S. Open at 12 over par. Uh, Julius Boros won in 1963 at 9 over par. And most recently, the U.S. Open held at Brookline in 1988, where Curtis Strange uh Wins at six under par, wins in a playoff over Nick Faldo. Thank you, Curtis. You've saved us potentially a lot of bragging this week from Nick Faldo. Anyway, 1988 U.S. Open. I mean, Jack Nicholas missed the cut that year at five over par. Gary Player missed the cut at seven over par. It's a tough course. I mean, it's. I mean, this is traditional historical. U.S. Open golf. This is supposed to be, um, I mean, it sounds cliche and it sounds obvious to anyone who has ever picked up a golf club, but it's supposed to be demanding off the tee. You're supposed to be able to drive the ball with precision, accuracy. You're supposed to have a good iron game and you're supposed to be able to put the ball well on some greens that will be some of the quickest that these guys have seen this year. Uh, I mean, all of that sounds obvious, but, you know, it's kind of like any sport. It comes down to execution. Um, the greens are quick. Uh, going to be a lot of blind shots at uh, Brookline. And I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, it's going to be an incredible week in Boston, and I really wish I was going. So let's dive in a little bit. What's crazy, Tiger Woods is not playing this week. You know, he had that car wreck last year, early last year or two years ago, whenever it was. And, you know, Tiger moves the needle. He, he's moved the needle since the early to mid-90s in, on the PGA Tour. And what's crazy is I feel like I've barely seen his name this week. I find that insane. Um, I don't. I don't want to say that golf is in a good place this week without Tiger Woods because any time that Tiger Woods plays, 
I mean, it, it's just that much more entertaining. But with all of this live, LIV, whatever it is, golf stuff, uh, with kind of the guys who have defected and played the first tournament overseas, who have committed to continuing to play in that in that new league, and the guys who have you know staunchly opposed it. Uh, I'll let you do your own research on Saudi Arabia and you know potentially where some of this money is coming from. Um, you know, I'm just here to talk sports, but um, all of those things kind of converging this week. I, I think, I think, you know, if you want to talk about a good thing for golf, just in terms of ratings, in terms of fire, in terms of intrigue, this is the week. Uh, you know, just another uh, another tough finish here for Greg Norman. If you go back to his history, but in majors, but. Opening that that league the week before the U.S. Open and having a week like last week at the RBC Canadian Open where they go Sunday, they go they go uh, uh, threesomes on Sunday. You get a final group of Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas, and Tony Finau, three of the best golfers in the world. Uh, the worst score in that group was like six under par just on Sunday. Rory ends up winning. The the fans uh, run out, you know, and encircle the green on 18 as Rory's coming up. That almost felt like a major. And not only felt like a major, but, but felt like, you know, it wasn't just a guy hanging on to win. It was a guy that if he didn't shoot, and I don't have the scores in front of me, so I don't exactly remember, but if he didn't play as well as he did, he was probably going to lose. And if Justin Thomas didn't play as well as he played, this thing would have been a blowout. Rory McIlroy would have won going away. Um, it was incredible golf, and the timing could not have been better. And especially building that kind of that kind of uh, that kind of intrigue heading into a major. Some of the best players in the world on the PGA Tour uh, playing their best golf not only this year, but maybe in the last few years, heading into the U.S. Open at such a historic course. This, I, in my opinion, it could not be any better for the PGA Tour and any worse for the guys uh, outside of their bank accounts uh, that are playing this live um, golf league. So, anyway... No Tiger Woods this week, resting up, trying to heal, trying to get ready for the last major of the year next month uh, at St. Andrews, the British Open. So that's crazy to me. You know, it's 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 all we talked about back in April was, you know, will Tiger play? Yes. And then following his every move. The PGA Championship, will Tiger play? And following his every move. He announces a week or two ago that you know, hey, I, I'm just I'm gonna rest up at the for the U.S. You know, I'm gonna skip the U.S. Open. I'm gonna rest up, try to get ready for the British at St. Andrews, and after all this live stuff really, really kind of hit the fan over the last couple of weeks with with their first tournament being played out. I just haven't heard his name much, and that's crazy that in the world of golf, I mean, we haven't seen that in 30 years that there's this kind of intrigue. There's this kind of interest worldwide in a in 
particularly one tournament that doesn't even include Tiger Woods. So I just think that is unbelievable. Uh, and I really look forward to what the week is going to look out, look like. And today, um, you know, today I'm recording this on Tuesday, two days before guys tee off uh, in the U.S. Open. And I'm going back through some of the transcripts from uh, press availability today. And one guy who I've been critical of over the years, John Rahm, um, you know, played at Arizona State, has reached world number one, uh, one of the best players. I, mean, I think he won the – I can't remember, did he win the U.S. Open last year? One of the, one of the best players in the world, you know, a top three, top four guy. Uh, he has his press availability today. And I earned so much respect for John Rahm today when he stood behind that microphone. Um, he was asked about that live golf tournament, and I've got the transcript in front of me. And he was asked, for you, is that something you've thought about in terms of an alternate league, and how would you weigh the value of what the PGA Tour has done versus what other players are going to do? Uh, he said he feels for the PGA Tour uh, CEO, the PGA Tour president, Jay Monahan, and uh, he or commissioner, I should say. Uh, you know, talking about him having to deal with you know the last couple of years, you know, leading through COVID, and now this. Uh, he said, I don't know if he signed up for all this or not. And he said, I this is quote. I consider the PGA Tour has done an amazing job giving us the best platform for us to perform. I do see the appeal the other people see towards the live golf. I do see some of the I'll put it I'll put this delicately points or arguments they can make towards why they prefer it. To be honest, part of the format is not really appealing to me. Shotgun three days to me is not a golf tournament. No cut. It's that simple. I want to play against the best in the world in a format that's been going on for hundreds of years. That's what I want to see. Yeah, money is great, but when Kelly, his wife, and I, the first thing happened, uh, we started talking about it, and we're like, with our, will our lifestyle change if I got $400 million? No, it won't change one bit. Truth be told, I could retire right now with what I've made and live a very happy life and not play golf again. So I've never really played the game of golf for monetary reasons. I play for the love of the game, and I want to play against the best in the world. I've always been interested in history and legacy, and right now the PGA Tour has that. He goes on to talk about a few uh, recent tournaments, the Memorial, etc. But I really want to look at that that history and legacy that he mentions, and he's so right. I mean, it's easy to say you don't play for monetary reasons when you make millions of dollars. I mean, you know, we all strive to be the best at what we do, and if we make a million, you know, millions of dollars, then it's easy to say, hey, I don't do this for the money. I do this for the history and the legacy. But, I mean, he had he had the, I don't want to say courage, but he had the confidence to go up there and say that uh, in front of the world as one of the, I guess now, spokesmen for the PGA Tour. He had the, the uh, confidence to go up there and really just kind of in a in a very professional way just kind of throw a flamethrower, um, you know, saying that this has history, this has legacy. And he's right. That Live, Live Golf League 
it doesn't have any history. It has money. It doesn't have any legacy. Everything has to start somewhere. I get that. He acknowledges that. But right now, what meaning, what true meaning, what fulfillment other than a check does it have to win? I don't even know what the name of the tournament was. I think it was in London. But he's so right. Uh, I've been critical of him in the past. Uh, you know, he, he, he has tended to be a hothead on the course in the past. Uh, some of that still comes out today, but he was great behind the microphone Microphone today. Uh, he said his heart is with the PGA Tour. And then he also said, it's not my business or my character to judge anybody who thinks otherwise. For a lot of people, I'm not going to lie. Those next three, four years are worth basically their retirement plan they're giving them. It's a very nice compensation to then retire and sell off into the sunset. If that's what you want, that's fine. I'm a history guy. I'm a legacy guy. You know, if I was making, you know, if John Rahm's already making, you know, hundred hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, on course and in endorsements and all of that kind of thing, what is that much more? I mean, I, I realize, you know, I'm obviously a big fan of capitalism, but you know what's the, what's the difference to you to your family's life a hundred million dollars versus four hundred million dollars or you know whatever that exact number might be so i i i just i really respected what he said and i'm glad he said it a lot of guys are coming out the same way that was just kind of the most recent uh the most recent example and um Patrick Reed, a guy that I I never really respected that much anyway. My respect for him just continues to dwindle. Uh, I mean, the dude's had me blocked on Twitter for a, a few years. Um, just, you know, some real mental toughness and a mental game there. Um, anyway, he talked about... Uh, he was at that last Live Golf Invitational, you know, at the wherever it was over the pond, and he said uh, after the tournament, he said it's refreshing to see team golf again. It brings you back to the good old days in college and also Ryder Cups and Presidents Cups, etc. I'm not sure Patrick Reed again. Y'all can go uh, Google this yourself. I'm not sure Patrick Reed is the person we want talking about his college golf days. Um, maybe go check into some of that and we won't even get into, I mean, you've all seen Phil Mickelson's, uh, his, uh, interviews by now. Phil used to be one of the most, and I say used to be, maybe there's still hope, but just the most, uh, thoughtful, funny, genuine, authentic guys on tour Especially even behind, I mean, especially behind a microphone. He was just him. He was gonna say what he wanted to say. Uh, just a character, amazing personality. You know, you looked forward to hearing what Phil had to say, whether it be about a serious topic, or whether it be to see you know what came out of his mouth as a joke next. And oh my gosh, his his U.S. Open press conference stuff came across like a deposition you know I think he said the word respect you know 50 times and he said a lot of words but provided no answers it was it was sad really to see what what these last few months with him uh just have done to that personality that public persona and 
you know, I know today during his practice round, he got booed. Guys don't get booed in golf unless it's the Ryder Cup and let, you know, something like that, a team, something like that event. Getting booed at the USGA's, you know, biggest event, the, I mean, a, one of the four major championships and getting booed during a practice round, I can't imagine what this is going to look like for him this week. He's already, you know, he took several months off. People have debated whether the PGA Tour suspended him for things he said over the last few months or if he was just taking time away. He said he's been going to therapy. That's great. Um, but if you just bring it back to just just the golf shots, just situational, you know, he's got a nine iron in, just, you know, driver off the tee, all those things. He's not playing that well. And at a course like this, you know, a U.S. Open, traditional U.S. Open setup, playing as difficult as it'll play, all the distractions he's had over the last few months, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear a lot of boos uh, against Phil this week. And that's sad for a guy who just one year ago, I mean, he won the PGA Championship like the oldest major winner ever. And maybe ever. Uh, don't quote me on that. Maybe Jack was 46 and 86. I, I don't remember how old Phil is. But anyway, one of the oldest major winners ever. And it was one of the, I mean, probably one of the most iconic major championship wins that we've seen outside of Tiger Woods. Just at that age to do what he did against all these bombers and up-and-comers, these up-and-comer guys these days. And then how quickly it got forgotten. I, I think his I think his legacy, I think his reputation, it might be tarnished for I mean maybe forever. So that will be really interesting to see this week with him, guys like him, Patrick Reed, Dustin Johnson, all these guys that have uh that have kind of defected and and headed to this new league. So uh, I mentioned Brookline uh, as a place where three U.S. Opens have happened. It was also the site of one of probably the most, uh, maybe the most iconic U.S. victorious Ryder Cup of all time, 1999. Uh, if you've ever seen, if you've ever seen any highlight of Justin Leonard, you've seen the Country Club at Brookline. Uh, that 33rd Ryder Cup back in 99, I mean, it was known as the Battle of Brookline. Um, the United States ends up winning. Uh, and I think, let's see, it was it was such a slim margin. The U.S. ended up winning uh, 14 and a half points to 13 and a half over the Europeans. So close. Europe went into the last day leading ten, you know, 10 to 6 in the team points. They only needed four points to retain the, the Ryder Cup. Uh, on that Sunday, the Americans rallied. They won the first like six matches of the day, surged ahead. Uh, Steve Pate won, won his match. Jim Furyk wins his match that, that uh, took the U.S. to a 14-12 lead, and they only needed 14.5 points to take back the Cup. So Justin Leonard, who I mentioned, he all he needed then to get a half point for the U.S. was to have his match with Jose Maria Olathebel, and uh, match was all square, fittingly. And on the seventeenth hole, 
kind of the iconic hole at Brookline, a little bit of a dog leg. Um, Leonard makes a birdie putt, and not just your run-of-the-mill birdie putt, 45, 50-foot birdie putt, drains it. Uh, place goes crazy. It's it's a little bit premature <laughs> celebrating on the green. Olathobble's still out there like, I've got a putt. Um, so Olathobble misses. He, he had like a 20, 30-footer. Uh, he misses. Leonard goes one up with one hole to play. So that assured him the half point uh, for the U.S. And the U.S. Uh, won back the Ryder, the Ryder Cup in 1999 with that putt. Uh, we won't talk about the uh, team outfits. They were hideous, but, hey, it was 1999. So, so much history here. And I think that's something that also benefits. I know this is a USGA event, but benefits the USGA, benefits the PGA Tour this week. I, I think I think this timing is just so great to combat. Not that the PGA Tour should, uh, I want to say, shouldn't have to worry a ton about this new golf league. I mean, you've got guys coming out speaking just vehemently in support of the PGA Tour and against the Live Tour. And some of your biggest names, you know, you've got Tiger Woods has said stuff. Uh, obviously, John Rahm, who I mentioned. Justin Thomas has been very outspoken. Rory McIlroy has been very outspoken. So you've got some of your, your top guys who have spoken just very passionately about loving the PGA Tour, remaining committed to the PGA Tour. And I think the timing just couldn't be any better. As long as these guys don't mess around and play horrible and miss the cut and, you know, God forbid, let Patrick Reed win this thing, um, I think this this week couldn't shape up any better. You've got Rory, who's probably playing the best golf that he's played maybe in a decade. Justin Thomas won the last major, his second major, won the PGA Championship earlier this year. Uh, you know, right there battling with Rory last week. I mean, he's you know he's a top two, top three player in the world. Um, Cam Smith's played well. Scotty Scheffler, obviously uh, the number one player in the world, has been just lights out this year. Won the his first major, the Masters, back in April. Um, and then you've just, you've got so many guys. It's, it's too many guys to go through. Um, but we'll see how, how that pans out. You know, you've got to be precise off the, again, cliche, but you've got to be precise off the tee, uh, good around the greens, a lot of blind shots. You got to be, you know, strong with your irons and all of these things are obvious if, if you've ever played golf again, but Never more important than at a U.S. Open, a traditional U.S. Open, where you know a lot, a lot of places you you get a little squirrely off the tee, and you know you can you can up and down from the first cut. You can you can get out of trouble. Uh, a place like this, Brookline, it's going to be tough to get out of trouble, and you're just going to have to be an absolute shot maker this week. You're going to have to play smart. Uh, you're going to have to play. You know, you're gonna have to attack the golf course, but in a in a smart way. You've got to be accurate, and you've got to roll the ball well around the greens. So, 
obvious things at any tournament, but never, never more important than than at a place like this. The course is a par seventy. I'm looking right now at uh, kind of the, just the scorecard. Uh, par seventy. So there's only two par fives. So you know you want to talk about traditional U.S. Open. I mean that that's a, that just tells you maybe there's going to be a bit of scrambling. You know birdies could be at a premium at times. The two par fives, you've got the par five eighth that right now it shows Thursday will play at 557 yards. I don't know the layout of that hole. I mean, it might be 557 yards straight downhill. I don't know. But 557 yards is a beast. And then you've got the par 5 14th that plays at 619 yards. Not only that, after 14, 619-yard par 5, you head up to the T at 15. It's a 510-yard par 4. And then 16, which is a 202-yard par 3. Before you get to that iconic 17th, that 373-yard par 4. We'll see how guys play that. It dog legs. I, I don't – dog legs, I believe, left. I don't know the exact uh, layout and just – trees around that around that hole maybe i mean at 373 if guys can cut the corner they're you know i I would certainly expect guys to attempt to cut that corner on the left and try to get closer down there if if that's something that's not feasible again shot making you know just plod your way around the golf course and don't make don't make too many mistakes try to play you know attack play confidently but at the same time don't get uh don't get too loosey goosey up there trying to you know make something happen you know kind of let the game come to you so it's nearly a 7300 yard golf course par 70 um uh, just just a monster course looking at some of this front nine i mean they you open up my goodness you open up your first four holes are a 488 yard par 4 215 yard par 3 uh, hole three is a yard shy of 500 yards par four. And then number four is a 493 yard par four. There's some lengthy holes out here for par 70. I, I don't, doesn't feel like a tournament. And I mean, we'll, maybe we'll revisit this if I'm, if I'm wrong on this, if anybody wants to call me out on it, that's fine. I just don't see how anybody's going to run away with a tournament like this at a course like this. That would just be absolute lightning in a bottle, uh, maybe never before seen um, kind of tournament play at a major if a guy runs away and hides with the lead at a course like this. So, um, man, let's talk about some of the guys. Let's talk. Let, let's just let, let's wrap. Start wrapping this thing up and really dive into the players. Who's trending well? Who who might struggle? That kind of thing. Uh, Justin Thomas maybe playing the best the best golf he's played in a while. Alabama guy, roll tide. Uh, almost beat Rory last week. Won the last major at the PGA. Playing incredibly well. Uh, has to keep that putter hot for four days straight. Uh, that seems like it's always been kind of the thing with JT when when he's kind of in contention. Uh, he he seems to have a day where 
you know, the putts just aren't falling. Maybe he's even hitting them well, reading them well. It, they're just not falling. But he's got to have, in a tournament like this, he's got to have four straight days of, of quality putting. Uh, obviously, Rory, I think he's playing the best golf he's played in maybe close to a decade, certainly the last five or six years. Just ball striking off the tee, you know, rolling the ball on the greens. He's, he's played really well. Scheffler, I mean, right now he's probably still your player of the year on the PGA Tour, top player in the world, kind of speaks for itself. Um, another guy that I found interesting that's played, I think has played well in majors in recent years, you always kind of see his name hovering around there, is Matthew Fitz, Fitzpatrick. And, I mean, one, his name is always kind of floating around that, that top half, top third, top quarter of the leaderboard at a major, even on the weekends. But uh, he won the U.S. Amateur at Brookline in 2013. So he has experience here. I mean, that's almost a decade ago. But, you know, he can pull from that mentally. He can pull from... I've done this before. I mean, nothing's, you know, a U.S. amateur is not a U.S. Open. But, you know, that, that, that might be something that gives him some of those good vibes mentally throughout the week that, hey, I can do this. I've done it before here. I, I know how this shot should shape, all those different things. So that's a, I think that's a guy to really keep an eye on. You know, he's never won a major, but, man, he's been right there. Uh, another guy kind of in that same vein is uh, Corey Connors, uh, the Canadian. He's played really well in majors, and uh, I think he's played incredibly well at the Masters, his first couple of Masters. He's been, you know, a top 10 guy. Uh, he was kind of my sleeper pick at the Masters this year. He goes, and I forget exactly where he finished, but he was another top 10 guy. He's he's 45 to one odds if you're uh, if you're a degenerate and you're into that kind of thing, betting on this stuff. I mean, he's 45 to 1 odds, and at that same 2013 U.S. Amateur that Matthew Fitzpatrick won, Corey Connors was a semifinalist there at this course, the Country Club at Brookline. Um, he, I mean, his game is just kind of tailor-made for this U.S. Open-type setup. I mean, he's accurate off the tee. He's one of the best iron players on tour. Uh, his, his short game, his putting – those numbers are trending well, especially uh, this spring heading into this summer. Those have been just steadily increasing. So if he can, you know, if he can convert some up and downs and, uh, you know, that kind of thing and just kind of stay steady and, you know, hit some maybe some big putts when he needs them, that's a guy that's going to, that could be right there on Sunday. Uh, Another guy that I just wanted to briefly touch on is uh, Patrick Cantlay. I've I've been kind of off the Patrick Cantlay train for a bit after riding that train for a while. I mean, I, I believe he got to he got to number one in the world, and uh, you know after that, I don't know what it's been about some of these majors and not necessarily the U.S. Open. Uh, I mean, he. I think he's struggled a little bit at the PGA. Uh, he's he's maybe struggled a bit at other big tournaments, like Players Championship. You call it the fifth major. Um, 
he's a guy that kind of like Corey Connors, although to a greater degree, feels kind of tailor made to this to this kind of thing. Um, you know, he's the reigning PGA Tour Player of the Year. You get him on a course like this where off the tee is so important. Um, that's going to influence who who's standing there holding this trophy on Sunday. He's he kind of does everything well. Uh, I don't think he's just an absolute standout at one thing and just kind of so-so on something else. He's kind of the total package. And if he he's one of those guys that when you when you think about a conversation of who's the best golfer in the world without a major, he's certainly one of probably two or three guys in that discussion. So Cantley is a guy that that I would also uh really look at this week. Uh, some other guys, I mean, Billy Horschel recently won at Memorial. Um, he's had just one top 15 and 33 starts in the majors as a pro. That's unbelievable. Um, so I don't know what that is about him, but maybe this is a week that that he kind of climbs back into that top 15, playing well. Um, well, who else? Joaquin Neiman. The dude doesn't miss cuts. Uh, he he still hasn't finished top twenty in a major, but my gosh, he's com- he's a competitive guy. Uh, he's only twenty three years old. He's one of another one of those guys that that feels inevitable to eventually win a major. Maybe maybe his name isn't mentioned in that category that much, but I'm gonna put him there. I mean. I I forget how many tournaments he's played in this year. I think it was if it was sixteen, he's made like thirteen cuts. He he won Tiger Woods' event, uh, back in the winter, out in somewhere in California, and he's a guy that, I mean, he's only twenty three years old. That's unbelievable. Um, he's 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 gonna win a major someday. Is it this week? I don't know, but I don't think so. But he's he's gonna win a major. Um, Will Zalatoris, another super young guy. He's played in seven, only seven majors in his career so far. He's finished runner-up uh, in two of them, top ten in four of them in his first seven majors. Unbelievable. Uh, last start was at Memorial, uh, which Billy Horschel won. Uh, he finished tied for fifth, so he's right there. Another guy, Tony Finau. I mean, we'll see. T- Tony is such a week-to-week guy. He was right there last week at the Canadian Open. So that's a guy to, I don't know, I, I, I could see him in the final group on Sunday. I could see him missing the cut Friday. We'll see. Colin Morikawa. Uh, you know, there was a minute there after those first couple majors we thought, oh, my gosh, Colin's going to – you know, be right there on Sunday, all of these majors. But he's, the over the last, I mean, this year, really, he's seems to have regressed since the Masters. I don't remember where he finished Masters or if he made the cut, but he, uh, he he's, he's played kind of a fade for, I guess, basically his career. And he's just been kind of, I don't want to say tugging the ball. He's a pro, but... He's been playing more of a draw. He's really trying to figure – I don't know. He's going through some swing stuff right now. So uh, I don't know while working on, working through some stuff, some swing stuff. I don't know 
if this is the week for a guy like that, I mean, he's a top five, top ten player in the world. Uh, he'll be, you know what, let's just dive into this as part of these picks. Uh, I have a category that I just kind of want to end on, just a surprise miscut, a surprise top ten, and a winner. And I think Morikawa is going to be my surprise miscut. I, I don't think you can come into a major, uh, a major that he's won at a course like this, set up the way it is, going through some of the swing things he's going through, and make the cut, uh, let alone compete. So I, I, I think uh, I think Morikawa is a guy that we're not going to see this weekend. Um, Surprise top 10. This is hard. It's a U.S. Open. I mean, what what would really what would really what would really surprise people? You know, I mean, these these are tournaments where the big names show up and they show out. So, who who is a guy that's a top 10 guy that would surprise you? Um, I think I'll go, and I don't, I don't think this is a surprise. Um, I'm going to go with Shane Lowry. Uh, I mean, he his first major championship contention, I guess, was back six years ago at this tournament out at Oakmont. Um, he, he's been, I mean, he's just a, tough as nails mental guy won the British Open uh he is playing some of the best golf of his life so that's probably a reason why this isn't necessarily a surprise top 10 but I'll take it a step further and I'll say he might be your surprise winner uh I'm not gonna pick him as my winner um but again I'll say I'll I'll kind of give you some duality there. I'll say he's my surprise top 10 and he's one of my surprise top three guys. How about that? I, I think, I think he's a guy um, that just, he's like so much moxie about him. Nothing really phases him on the golf course. And if he were to win, it would be so much fun just from a content standpoint. Cause those Irish guys get after it when they are excited about something so that brings us to the who is going to win this tournament hmm i'm gonna go it would be easy so it would be super easy to say that rory mcelroy is gonna win or jordan spieth or john rome or Justin Thomas, or Scotty Scheffler. Those are too easy. And those, all of those guys could certainly win. I'm going to go with a guy, Sam Burns. Uh, I'm not sure how much of a surprise that might be to you, but I'm going to go with Sam Burns. Uh, oh my gosh, over the last, just over the last year, he's won four times, three second place finishes, lots of top tens. Uh, last week at the RBC Canadian, uh, he was tied for fourth. He's seventh, uh, looking at some statistics right now, he's seventh on tour in adjusted scoring. He's sixth in bogey avoidance. 
So he's not making, you know, he's one of those guys that doesn't make a lot of mistakes. Of course, like this, you want to be aggressive, obviously, but you also want to minimize those mistakes. He's a guy, I mean, ranked sixth, he's a guy that does that. Um, he's, and again, for you degenerates out there, he's 25 to one odds to win. I mean, I think a guy that's had this much success that's trended this well over the last 12 to 15 months being at 25 to one odds. That's, I think that's really good value. Um, you know, he, he won in March, he won the Valspar. And then since then he's won two top or he's had two top five finishes he won the Charles Schwab two weeks ago. Uh, like I said, tied fourth at the Canadian. He he hangs tough. He's, he avoids the bogeys, like I said. So I think Sam Burns is going to be my pick to win the 2022 U.S. Open up in Boston. So that's going to – I've gone on for 45 minutes. That's going to do it for this U.S. Open preview uh, maybe we'll revisit these. We'll maybe I'll post about them. You can follow me on Twitter. That's that's where you'll see me post about this. Uh, at Gary A. Lloyd, and I'll keep this. These notes I've made: surprise miscut, Colin Morikawa, surprise top ten, Shane Lowry, and my winner, Sam Burns. And if I'm woefully wrong, which I probably will be, I'll own it. If I'm right, I'm gonna revel in it. So. Until next time, I hope it's a great U.S. Open. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great Father's Day weekend, and we will see you all next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Books, Babble, and Ball podcast. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. We'll see you next time.